Sketches from Scripture presents Light in the Darkness, a teaching series from the stories of Genesis. Light in the Darkness is a teaching series by me, author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. In this podcast, we'll be exploring the narrative structure and style of the book of Genesis as context for better understanding of Scripture. This will help us trust more in these scriptures by demystifying them, taking the stories from the perceived realm of mythology or spiritual mysticism or religious fairy tale and putting them on the ground where they belong. Real words written by real people about real events in real places, all pointing us to a very real God. I hope this podcast scatters your darkness and makes the great light abundant in your life. If you enjoy this podcast, please share it with others. Hope that you enjoy listening. Hope you find this um, educational, but I hope that the education that you get from it is inspiring in some way. That it's not just knowledge. Knowledge by itself doesn't do a whole lot. Um, Mr. Bivens, my freshman English teacher, used to say, when somebody would say knowledge is power, he'd correct us. He'd say knowledge is potential power. Wisdom is power. So hopefully this knowledge uh, you can use with wisdom and it will be powerful in your life. Okay, so we're looking at Genesis, Genesis chapters 12 through 14 tonight. We've already looked at 12, but we're just going to go over a couple things and then move on and look at 13 and 14. We're in the life of Abram, who of course will later be called Abraham. Very important character in the Judeo-Christian mythos. Again, when I use that word mythos, that does not mean that these things are not true. That word mythos simply means these are the stories that are sort of the what knits together our understanding of who we are, where we came from, um, our values, and those sorts of things. And in fact, the first 11 chapters of Genesis are written in a mythic style. Again, not that they're written in as fairy tales or that they're written as fiction, but they're written in a mythic style, sort of a genre style of writing in the same way that you have poetry or you have prose or you have stereo instructions. Um, the mythic style of writing is a, a, a way of writing. It's a way of communicating certain content. And that's what we're really looking at a lot in this study of Genesis in particular is the narrative style of Genesis. So a lot of this content, you may be learning some new content and that's great. A lot of this content may be things that you've heard before, but I'm trying to stitch it together with the storytelling style because it is the storytelling style that is communicating something new that maybe you have not picked up on before. So hopefully a lot of the new things that you're learning are coming out of this idea of the storytelling style. And I'll have a couple of important things to say about that uh, a little later. So quick review, Genesis 1 through 11. Genesis 1, creation. Genesis 2, creation of man and woman. Genesis 3, the fall, the beginning of sin. Remember, Genesis is about beginnings, right? So it's to get the beginning, the beginning of man and woman, the beginning of sin. Cain murders Abel, so you got the, the beginning of murder. Uh, then you've got the lineage of Seth in Genesis 5. Uh, Genesis 6 is Noah. Genesis 7 is the flood. Genesis 8, the flood subsides. Genesis 9, the rainbow and Ham's offense where Canaan is cursed. Genesis 10, you've got Noah's lineage. Uh, 
And then Genesis 11, you've got the Tower of Babel, followed by a more descriptive, a more descriptive lineage of Shem, showing us that this is this is through Shem that God's people will um, will be born. And uh, all of Genesis chapters one through eleven starts with the beginning of everything known to man and drills down until we get to one guy, and that's Abram. And so that's who we're looking at in Genesis chapter 12. So Genesis 1 through 11 functions as sort of this prologue to the entire Bible that really zooms zooms in from way out in the universe down to this one guy out in the middle of the wilderness. One concept that we've seen over and over again, we see it again in that first sentence of Genesis 1, that when there's all this chaos, everything going on, God comes in and through his word separates light and dark. And he tries to make abundance where there is light, and he uh, tries to scatter the darkness and keep it away from the light, keep everything separate. So uh, we talked about the idea of holiness. What does holy mean? It means set apart, right? And we have a um, an idea of holiness that there's uh, inherent righteousness in that, that you're set apart for something righteous, for something good, for something higher, right? And so you see that right in that first sentence of Genesis with the light separating from dark. And you've seen it really in every story since uh, Adam and Eve sin, they're scattered from the garden, from away from the tree of life. Cain murders Abel. He is sent out away from the rest of the family of God. Um, Noah is saved as the rest of the world is obliterated so that this remnant can be saved and then abundance can come from it. When Ham sins, he is scattered and sent away. Canaan is cursed, slave to his brothers forever. And on and on it goes. Tower of Babel, a microcosm of all these stories that we've seen thus far. So holiness is a big concept, even though the word holiness never appears. That idea of being set apart, being separated, is uh, a big theme already in Genesis from the first sentence. And it continues. Another thing that we've seen a lot of is this idea of the family of God with all these lineages. Right? So these aren't just, okay, this person over here and this person over here and this person over here. No, this is the family of God. These are the people that God made and blessed and chose. And we're following that family and we're staying with that family. Very important. So the overall thing that we hear in Genesis essentially is remove yourself from the wicked world and be a blessing to me and to all people. Uh, David Young at North Boulevard had a sermon series, and it was called Apart from the World for the Sake of the World. And it referred very much to, um, he was referring to some some New Testament passages, but it refers right here to this blessing uh, that we see God giving Abram in chapter 12, which we looked at a couple of nights ago. So let's pick up there in Genesis chapter 12 with this idea of a, a, apart from the world for the sake of the world, remove yourself from the wicked world and be a blessing to me and, and to all people, God says. So uh, in Genesis chapter 12 here, this comes right on the heels of the Tower of Babel story. So in Babel, they wanted to build that city. Remember, cities are a place made out of fear. Cain goes away, builds the first city out of fear. He's afraid, so he builds a tower and he builds a wall. And then everybody else comes in there and they build walls around that and they build walls around their homes and ceilings on their homes. It's all about fear in Genesis, in the storytelling. So we have Babel. They build the city out of fear. And then they decide they do that because they want to make a great name. In this blessing in Genesis chapter 12, you see God right away. What the Lord offers Abram is, I will uh, give you a great name, right? He says that ex explicitly. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great. So the thing that 
the men tried to claim at the city of the, the building of the Tower of Babel, we see the Lord offering Abram this humble shepherd. Uh, another thing that I want to point out is how much time passes here. So the Lord gives this blessing to Abram at the beginning of chapter 12. You will be a great blessing. You'll bless, you know, through the whole earth. Uh, all the clans of the earth through you shall be blessed. And we learn that Abram is 75 in the next verse, that he's 75 years old. How long does it take before this promise is fulfilled? All right, some of you who know some scripture, probably saying 25 years, because you know that Abram is 100 years old when uh, Isaac comes around. But consider, that's only the beginning of the answer to the promise, because the whole world isn't blessed through Isaac. It's through Abram's seed, through Abraham's seed. So there's Isaac, and then there's Jacob, and then there's Jacob's sons, and then you have the story of Joseph and everything that happens in Egypt. And then uh, the whole family moves to Egypt, and then they're there for centuries. And then Moses has to call them out 400 years later. So you could say, okay, well, maybe it's you know five or 600 years before this promise is really fulfilled. But isn't it really fulfilled in Jesus? And so now you're talking, you know, over a millennia later, right? And isn't it really only going to be fully fulfilled at the end of time? And it's been 2,000 years and time marches on. And so uh, how long has it been since uh, God has promised this to Abram and how long uh, for it to be fulfilled? Kind of goes um, on your definition of fulfilled. But the minimum is 25 years. I mean, 25 years before it even begins to see the glimmer of a real answer. So imagine God makes a promise to you right now. Now take your age and add 25 years. I'm 41. I would be 66 before the beginning of the answer would start to show itself. I don't know about you. I'm not that patient. I can't. I mean, you know, I've been here with mom and dad at the house for, for two weeks. We love each other very much, but like two weeks is a long time to just stay in one house and not be able to go out. And I know many of you are feeling that, that same pressure. Those of you who are, um, hold up at home, right? So here in two weeks, I'm getting antsy, you know, 25 years before Abram even starts to see the beginning of the answer to this promise. Keep that in mind because it's very easy for us to flip through the pages of Genesis. We don't have to wait 25 years to find out what happens. Put yourself in the mind of Abram and realize what patience this must take. And if you had a promise that you were waiting on for 25 years, how discouraged would you get? You know, uh, how many times would you try to make the answer to the promise happen yourself? And that's a little bit of what we see. So going back into the text in Genesis chapter 12, Sarah is barren. Abram is not really getting any blessing. So what does he do? He goes down to Egypt and um, Sarah is taken as the wife of Pharaoh because Pharaoh doesn't realize she's already married. And Pharaoh gives Abram a bunch of livestock and things in return. And so surely that's got to be something Abram's thinking is, well, maybe this is how my name will be great, you know, through my family, but maybe it's not me. Maybe it's, you know, Sarah has a child through someone else or maybe, um, uh, someone else around. I mean, Sarah's already you know, 74 at this point. So uh, the idea of them having children is, is laughable to any, any reasonable human being. So who knows what Abram is thinking, but he seems to be sort of taking matters into his own hands. So Abram going to Egypt is how man deals with barrenness. And we will see in coming chapters how the Lord deals with barrenness. 
Um, God wants Abraham's trust. He gives him the promise decades before its fulfillment becomes a reality. He wants Abram's trust. Abram immediately trusts in his own schemes. Right? We see that. Even so, God delivers even sinful people. Remember, we saw through the story of Noah that every person is evil from their youth. So the things that Abram's doing should be no surprise to us. Okay, let's move on to chapter 13. Flipping through here. And again, I'm going through Robert Alter's translation and commentary titled The Five Books of Moses. He's also done the entire Hebrew scriptures. You can find that as ebook or uh, hardback. Okay, Genesis chapter 13. So again, I'm not going to read it just uh, for copyright reasons and that sort of thing. I might read some little sections. Um, but this would be good for you after a, a lesson to go and read the chapters that we talk about or maybe read them before you come in. So um, chapter 13, here's what happens. We see Abram, he's coming out of Egypt. And who is with him in Egypt? Well, he's got Lot. Okay, so uh, Lot is his nephew. So Abram and Lot are now going into the Negev, and there's a bunch of them, and they've got a bunch of livestock and a bunch of farmhands, and there's just too many people all to be in one place. And so Abram says, hey, um, and let's look right here in verse, um, somewhere around verse eight or nine. He says, Let, let's not have there be any contention between you and me, between your herdsmen and mine, for we are kinsmen. Is not the land, is not all the land before you? Pray, let us part company. If you take the left hand, then I shall go right. And if you take the right hand, I shall go left. And Lot raised his eyes and saw the whole plain of the Jordan, saw that all of it was well watered before the Lord's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt until you come to Zoar. And Lot chose for himself the whole plain of the Jordan and Lot journeyed eastward and they parted from one another. Abram dwelled in the land of Canaan and Lot dwelled in the cities of the plain and he set up his tent near Sodom. Very often, episodes in Genesis will end on sort of this ooh, foreboding note, kind of like a TV show ends, like with a cliffhanger where you want to come back next week and see what happens. And so you can see that happening here already, this foreshadowing, oh, he's near Sodom. You got to remember, even though we're reading through it in sort of a chronological way, the first hearers of this, the first hearers of Genesis would already know about Sodom and Gomorrah. So when they hear the word Sodom, well, they know what that means. They know what's coming, right? So just hearing the name Sodom already is some foreshadowing. And you see here, it alludes to that. It says, before the Lord's destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. So it's letting the hearer know this was before the event that you're familiar with has taken place. Now, one thing that you may not pick up on here is there is a choice being made. All right, you, you get the choice. You go left or right. Okay, but what you don't get is sort of the alternative. You see what Lot chose. You see he chose the well-watered plain of the Jordan. Who wouldn't, right? What you didn't see, the alternative. Now, I've been lucky enough to go to Israel. I've stood in a place almost exactly where this conversation would have taken place. And you look off one way, you look down the hill, and you see the Jordan Valley. And it looks like Colorado. It's green. It's lush. It's desert. But it's it's uh, there's the Jordan Rivers down there. And there's lots of vegetation growing there and the low-lying plains from where the Jordan will spill over its banks and the times that it floods in the spring. And you can say, oh, here's a nice, lush place to go and live. When you look in the other direction, it's what you might expect to see in Israel, which is rocky desert, a few shrubs, and that's it. So Abram does a very honorable thing and says, let's 
not tax the land and let's not you and I get in fights with each other. You pick nephew, you pick younger family member. Lot looks, doesn't give the choice back to his uncle, which would have been an honorable thing to do. Doesn't give his uncle the best piece of land, the Jordan Valley. No, Lot takes that for himself. A very disrespectful thing that Lot has done to his uncle. Something that you don't quite pick up on because the alternative is not given in the scripture. Why? Well, because all the initial hearers for centuries lived in this part of the world. They knew what the alternative was. They were well aware of what the landscape was like. And so uh, it was very clear to many hearers for centuries um, that this was a very dishonorable thing that Lot has done. Now, Lot has made this choice for two reasons. One is apparent, the other not so apparent. So the apparent reason is it's lush, it'll be good for his livestock, it's thriving. That's the apparent reason. But the not quite apparent reason is this. Because it is lush, because it is good for livestock, Lot's not the only guy to think of this. There are lots of people, no pun intended, living on the Jordan. There are many people who have settled there. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are somewhere near the Dead Sea and the Jordan area. And so what you have is Lot not just choosing the lushness for his livestock, but he's choosing the people and the cities. Whereas Abram now is going to the wilderness to be a nomadic shepherd. And I told you during our last class, you would see that start to take shape between Abram and Lot, this idea of the cities being evil and the tent dwellers being the people of God. And we see that already. Why might that be? Oh, I don't know. Maybe because God lived in a tent for the rest of the Torah. We'll get to that uh, in a few weeks, Lord willing. Okay. So you see the tent dwellers versus the city folk. So again, this is not a thing that goes throughout the whole Bible. And in the New Testament, cities are a really good place because that's where all the people are so that you can go and tell them about Jesus. Uh, this is just a storytelling tactic. Okay. It's, it's not a theology that cities are bad. It's just a storytelling tactic that cities represent sort of the evil, fearful thing. And the nomadic people are the ones that are dwelling in tents, trusting in the Lord. It's just a, just a storytelling thing. Okay, so what we have set up now is we have, in all these stories previous, we've had, you know, Adam, and then we've had Noah. Now we have two characters, Abram and Lot. Lot is, I mean, uh, Abram is clearly our main character, but we have Lot that is making all the opposite choices that Abram is, okay? So you have uh, Abram, Abraham, and then you have Lot who's making all the opposite choices. He's kind of like a, a Nabram or a Nabraham, right? Okay, so you have this dichotomy set up. You have this contrast. So you can see the consequence of Lot's choices by choosing the city, the people, the fear, uh, trusting in uh, man, trusting in self, trusting in money, um, all of the things, the 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 sin and the inhospi the inhospitality and the and the the lust and everything that comes along with with living in the city, versus the nobility and the honor and the trusting in the Lord and the patience of the tent dwelling Abraham. So. Uh, we'll see it again when we see Jacob and Esau and so on. We'll see these dichotomies spring up and we should follow those all the way through the book of Genesis. Okay, did Abram just let Lot choose this lush Egypt-like land? There is no response by Lot. Remember I said, look at dialogues. 
because dialogues are always between two people. And so when you only see one person speaking, that's giving you commentary on what the other person is doing. So Abram has basically given this choice and Lot is out of there to all the lushness, doesn't even offer a response. And Abram doesn't offer a response to what Lot does. He just goes on his own way, uh, trusting the Lord in the wilderness. So why does Abram do this? Okay, three possible reasons. Maybe Abram expected Lot to be honorable. Maybe expected him to do the honorable thing. I don't know why he would expect that because Lot just saw how he acted in Egypt, which was not very honorable. Okay, but, you know, maybe Abram had high hopes. Maybe, the second reason, maybe Abram wanted Lot to have the better land. And so maybe he was being self-sacrificing. Because again, he may be thinking, um, this is how the promise is going to go. You know, the Lord told me my my family, my seed, um, we see later on in uh, chapter 12, he gives them that initial promise. And then down in verse like 17 or so, God sort of reiterates the promise and adds the word to your seed, I will give this land, which is the second time that he's made the, the promise to Abram. And so Abram may be thinking, well, he's not like my seed, but he's like, he's my kinfolk. He's, we're kinsmen. So maybe that's how, maybe that, maybe through Lot, maybe that's how this is going to be fulfilled. So maybe Abram is being self-sacrificing so that Lot will thrive. Again, not necessarily really consistent with Abram's character so far, but again, he, he may be trying to force the Lord into blessing him through um, his own ways. Third option might be maybe Abram just didn't want to be near the cities, either to keep himself um, unstained by the world. Maybe he's just an introvert and wants to be alone. Uh, maybe he doesn't want to be keep fighting for resources all the time. That seems to be why he's parting from Lot, and he doesn't want to go down and fight with a bunch of other people that aren't his, aren't his kinsmen, aren't his understanding. So we don't really know. We don't really know why Abram lets Lot make this choice. We don't know. Well, we don't know because the text doesn't tell us. Now, if we believe that the text is the word of God, and we believe that the text is ultimately authored by the Holy Spirit, which if you believe in Jesus, you should, because Jesus speaks that way about Scripture. If we believe that about Scripture, then what we must know is that the author has access, if the author, or if you're going to talk about the author as the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit knows why Abram let Lot make this choice, and yet chooses not to tell us. That could be for one of two reasons. The first reason could be maybe it's just inconsequential to the storytelling. Okay. The second reason uh, might be maybe it's better to leave it ambiguous. You oftentimes in Genesis, you will see some ambiguity remaining in a story. Why might that be? Well, let me submit this to you as a storyteller. It's a very powerful tool in storytelling to use ambiguity. I have a story that I wrote called The Darkness Rolled Over Her. It's about a woman named Gwen. And you learn in one sentence that she is a veteran. If you don't really learn much about that, the story's not really about that. Um, what the story is about is that she is depressed and lonely and is um, contemplating doing something drastic. So anyone reading, even a male who reads, they know, okay, the character is a woman and she's got a couple of points here in her backstory. But I leave a lot of her backstory ambiguous so that even a male reading it can associate with the things that she's going through. Even someone who's not in such a dire position as her can associate with the loneliness and depression as she describes it. By leaving it ambiguous, I allow the reader to put themselves better in the eyes and the mind, the thinking of the main character. 
So there's a um, a cartoonist named Scott Adams. He he does the Dilbert comic strip, and he's actually a trained hypnotist, and he's uh, done a lot of teaching on persuasion lately. And one of the things that he says about persuasion, he refers to his own comic strip, Dilbert. Okay, many of you listening are probably at least familiar with what the comic strip is: workplace humor uh, comic strip. You find it in your in your newspaper. What is the name of the company that Dilbert works for? It's never mentioned. Well, what industry are they in? It's never mentioned. Well, okay, his pointy-haired boss. I mean, that guy has a name, right? No, they just. My, my dad's always called him the pointy-haired boss. I don't. I don't. I don't even know what he's called, but he has no name. And Adam says that's very intentional, because as soon as the boss has a name, it's no longer your boss. As soon as the company has a name, it's no longer your company. As soon as the industry is designated, it's no longer your industry. And so by keeping all those things ambiguous, you can read that comic strip and go, oh, that's exactly what it's like to work here, man. He just really nailed it. Because what you're doing sort of subconsciously is filling in all the gaps with the stuff that you know that I couldn't possibly do for you and certainly couldn't do for every reader. So ambiguity is a very powerful tool in storytelling because it allows the hearer or the reader to fill in the gaps and make the story much more personal to them. It's a very powerful storytelling tool. Second thing that the ambiguity does is as you're filling in the gaps, what that means is now you are participating in the storytelling. And so now you are tying yourself into that story and it's really becoming a part of who you are. It's not just something that you're listening to. This is both the power and the danger of storytelling. It's dangerous to, to um, you know, uh, participate in, in some books and television shows and movies in this way because it can drastically affect our worldview. Uh, but it's even dangerous sometimes in scripture when we cannot separate storytelling from theology. Okay. So it's a wonderfully powerful tool that you're able to sort of fill in the gaps and put yourself in the mind of Abram and sort of fill in some of these ambiguities that takes you right along in the story. Very powerful for the storytelling. But it's very important when you come to do theology, when you come for doctrine, that you're able to separate that out and, and make sure that you're not reading things into the text that aren't there simply because you assume they're there because of your experiences, your understanding, or your prior teaching. So I hope that I was able to um, make a good delineation between the storytelling and, you know, the content, the doctrine, the theology. I think that it's wonderful that there's this ambiguity that we can put ourselves in, in the storytelling. But when it comes to doing theology, we have to really make sure, and what I'm saying is in the text, is that really there? We have to really look, because we don't want to say something that the Bible doesn't say. Okay, enough storytelling stuff. Let's move on. Okay, end of Genesis 13, introduction of Sodom, and we learn a little bit um about Sodom uh, there. And then we see God reiterating the promise again to Abram. So this is promise uh, the third time uh, the Lord has made this promise to Abram about his seed getting this land. So let's kind of keep track of how many times God promises this to Abram. Going on to chapter 14 now. Okay. Chapter 14, war. So again, I just want to point out the passage of time. We're flipping through these pages, but years are passing by for Abram and Lot as these things are going on. So during this passage of time, what we see is Abram has his own herdsmen. He's got his own people. He seems to have kind of a little army of his own. So, you know, it's not just like Abram and a few sheep, like Abram's a force. He's, he's, he's uh, got some, some influence based on, if nothing else, his, the number the number of people that he has, the number of livestock he has. Uh, he seems to be a rich guy by this point. 
And Abram is not staying out of this war. So you can, again, read, I'm not going to read the details of the war. You can read through all that, all the, the different tribes and everything that are around. He's not staying out of this, this world war. I mean, it's a regional war, but it was the known world of the time, pretty much. So he's not staying out of this world war. And yet he's not a pacifist. I mean, he, he uh, goes and participates. So he's got his own trained men. He has allegiances um, with some of the tribes in the area. So he's, um, He's, he's, he's kind of staying out of it, but he, I mean, he's not a pacifist, right? Okay. When does he finally enter the war? Cause he doesn't get into it in the beginning. When does he finally enter the war? Well, he enters it when Lot is kidnapped. He does it to save his family. That's why he gets into the war. Remember the theme, the repeating theme. We got holiness, you know, the separation of light and darkness. That's a, that's a big theme in Genesis. And the other one is the family of God. And so here we have Abram, his family has been kidnapped. And remember also, Abram may be thinking it's through Lot that this promise will be fulfilled. So if God's not going to save him, well, I guess I have to go do it for God, right? That's sort of kind of what Abram's thinking here. Again, it's not really fully learned to trust yet in the Lord. Uh, at the end of the war, Abram has helped. And the king of Sodom goes to give Abram a gift. And Abram says, I don't want anything of yours, lest someone be able to say, you have made Abram great. Okay, what we must know, what we may not pick up on, is that in Eastern culture, it's very insulting to not accept a gift from someone. Why would Abram do something this insulting? Well, this does seem to be uh, a bit of his trust in the Lord. It might be trust in himself. It might be he wants his own name. But remember, the Lord is the one who has promised to make his name great. So it seems to be kind of a trust in the Lord. In fact, he opens his uh, speech there uh, in around uh, 21, 22. Um, I raise my hand in oath to the Lord, Abram says to the king of Sodom, that I won't take anything of yours. So this does seem to be Abram trusting the Lord, at least in some way. Maybe he feels more confident now because Lot is back in his hand. So um, so we see um, Abram maybe possibly beginning to trust the Lord at this point. Okay, so now we get to this very interesting thing that happens here. As Abram is coming back from war, he meets this guy named Melchizedek. And let me read to you a little bit uh, just about uh, Melchizedek, just a couple of verses, so around verse 18 or so. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, for he was priest to El Elyon. That is just an English transliteration of the Hebrew. El Elyon just means God the Most High, right? Uh, and he blessed him, and he said, Blessed be Abram to El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be El Elyon, who delivered your foes into your hand. And Abram gave him a tithe, or a tenth, gave him a tenth of everything. So, all right. Who is this Melchizedek guy? Abram voluntarily gives a tenth to him. What we see with Melchizedek is that he is a king priest. So he is the king of Salem, but he was also priest to God most high. And so this is now sort of a, even a new name now for the guy that we recognize as the creator back from a few chapters ago. And this appears to be Abram's God as well. So this is the same, the Lord that we've been seeing throughout. So Melchizedek is a king and a priest. He is a king priest. Uh, his name, Melchizedek, means king of righteousness. 
Melchizedek, that's what that means. Kazedek, I think, is the Hebrew for righteousness. So we have king of righteousness. Uh, Melchizedek is king of righteousness. And then he's the king of a, a place called Salem. And Salem, of course, you've heard uh, the Jewish word shalom, which means what? It means peace. So he is the king of righteousness, and he's also the king of peace. King of righteousness in his name, and king of peace by the name of the city that he is king over. And he's also a priest to God Most High. So Melchizedek is a king priest. Now, later in Israel, kings and priests would be separate. They'd be separate things. Uh, but this is uh, before Judah comes around, because all the, the kingly lineage comes out of Judah, things that we'll look at later. And so what we're looking at here is a king priest. So now we see a reference to Melchizedek later in the Bible. We see it in Psalm 110. And it's given specifically that idea of a priest king. And yet no one fulfilled the role of priest king among the people of Israel until Jesus. And this Psalm, Psalm 110, is quoted by the writer of Hebrews. And it's explained as referring to Jesus. So let's flip over to Hebrews chapter 7 and take a look at that. Uh, I'm going to read all of chapter 7. We're almost out of time. But let me just explain something about Hebrews very quickly. So it's called Hebrews because it's a sermon to the Hebrew Christians, to the Jewish Christians. Because if you're a Jew, this Jesus guy coming along is very upsetting, even if you believe in him, especially if you believe in him. <clears throat> it, it turns your whole belief structure upside down. And... <clears throat> The, the curtain between the Holy of Holies and the courtyard has been torn and the food has been declared that, that has been unclean your entire life has been sort of declared clean by this Jesus guy and Gentiles are getting the Holy Spirit and becoming part of the church and worshiping Jesus, worshiping God. Uh, Jesus was a man who walked around and now we're, we're worshiping him because he was God. And this, this is very confusing to a Jew that has been very monotheistic. And uh, had very concrete ideas about God until Jesus showed up. So the author of Hebrews is taking the Jewish faith and making a case for Jesus. <clears throat> this is why it's so important <clears throat> to to uh, excuse me. This is why it's so important to really study your Old Testament, because if you don't study, if you don't understand the Old Testament, if you don't understand Judaism, there is no way you will understand the entire New Testament. You call yourself, okay, I'm a, New, I'm a New Testament Christian, or I go to a New Testament church. It's a lot of times when we say that, it's not because we ignore the Old Testament, but we certainly neglect it. <clears throat> we neglect it a lot. And so I want you to not neglect the Old Testament. Please pay attention to the Old Testament, because as you learn and discover what's going on in the Old Testament, suddenly the New Testament will be illuminated in ways you never understood before. Sure, anyone can read the surface of the New Testament and they understand Jesus saves and, and baptism and, and, and you know, how to live and things not to do and, and those kinds of things. But Paul talks to Gentiles a lot about Old Testament scripture. Uh, the author of Hebrews is speaking specifically to Jewish Christians. This is, this is a big, important book. And, uh, you know, the Faith Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11, I mean, we can't really understand that if we don't understand Judaism and the Old Testament. Uh, one other thing I'll say about Hebrews is, I talked a couple times ago about a chiasm, how you have A, B, C, D, E, and then you have the chi, and the chi changes everything, and then you back out D prime, C prime, B prime, A prime. They're mirrors of their counterparts, but now they're changed because of whatever that chi is. And in the Bible, it's always God. It's always Christ. Right? Hebrews is no different. Hebrews is a giant chiasm. It's taking every sort of issue that the Hebrew church had 
inserts Jesus into it as dying for everything once and for all, and how everything is different now because of faith in Christ. So in Hebrews 7, we're still before the Kai. And so he's going through and he's trying to make a case for who Jesus is. And he brings up Melchizedek. In fact, I think he brings up Melchizedek in Hebrews chapter 6. And he says, look, I got a lot to say about Melchizedek, except you won't understand it because you're all spiritual babies. You're all scriptural babies. You're still drinking milk. Uh, so now I've got to sit here and tell you all about Melchizedek, things you should already know. So here's Hebrews chapter 7. And I'll be reading from the Christian Standard Bible. And this is the the author of Hebrews in the sermon to the Jewish Christians. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of God Most High, met Abraham and blessed him as he returned from defeating the kings, and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. First, his name means king of righteousness, then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, mother, or genealogy, remember, there's no genealogy for Melchizedek in, in all of Genesis. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, I don't think the author here thinks that Melchizedek came out of nowhere and lived forever. He just means in the story, he just comes out of nowhere. It's just sort of assumed that he's always around and he disappears never to be heard from ever again. Having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. Now consider how great this man was. Even Abraham the patriarch gave a tenth of the plunder to him. Abram is showing him honor in this action, right? Uh, continuing verse five, the sons of Levi who received the priestly office, remember it's the Levites that are the priests later in Judaism, have a command according to the law to collect a tenth from the people. So the people have to give a tenth to the Levites and the Levites are still in Abraham's loins at this point. And Abraham's giving a tenth to Melchizedek. That should show you how important Melchizedek is. We'll skip on down to verse 11. Now, if perfection came through the Levitical priesthood, for on the basis of it, the people received the law. What further need was there for another priest to appear, said to be according to the order of Melchizedek, and not according to the order of Aaron? So again, the author is saying, hey, if we've got the Levitical priests, why does Psalm 110, which he goes on to quote, why does that say we need a priest in the order of Melchizedek rather than a priest in the order of Aaron? Well, we've already got priests in the order of Aaron, and those essentially aren't good enough. We need a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And so he explains from Psalm 110 how this is referring to Jesus. And so I'll skip on down to verse 22. Because of this oath, referring to the oath in Psalm 110 that we will, uh, that Jesus will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has also become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now many have become Levitical priests since they are prevented by death from remaining in office. But because he remains forever, he holds his priesthood permanently. So you know what? Levites, they die. Jesus lives forever, holds the priesthood permanently. Verse 25, therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him, since he always lives to intercede for them. Praise God for that. Verse 26, for this is the kind of high priest we need. Listen to the words he uses here. Holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. If that's not Genesis 1 language, I don't know what is. That's the themes of Genesis right there in that verse. Hebrews 7, verse 26. Continuing on, 27. He doesn't need to offer sacrifices every day, as high priests do, first for their own sins, then for those of the people. No, he did this once, Jesus, Jesus did this once for all time when he offered himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who are weak, but the prompt men who are evil from their youth, right? Men who are weak. But the promise of the oath, 
that Jesus will be a priest in the order of Melchizedek, the promise of the oath, which came after the law, appoints a son who has been perfected forever. So much from Genesis wrapped up there in Hebrews chapter 7. So uh, Levi is in Abraham's loins when Abram bows to Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is even greater than Abram. Thus, the need for the Hebrew author to make Jesus even greater than Melchizedek. By the way, it also kind of gets around the fact that Jesus is a priest without being a Levite. Because, you know, Jesus is from the tribe of Judah. So according to Jewish law, he couldn't be a priest. So the author of Hebrews says he doesn't have to be a Levite. He's bigger than Levites because he's a priest in the order of Melchizedek. He's explaining that to people that have a problem with Jesus not being a Levite and being called a priest. And so look at what is happening here. Look at Jesus and how he echoes the things that we've seen in the story. Remember that God brought him out of Egypt, right? So Abram has come out of Egypt. Remember in the New Testament and the Gospels, uh, you brought my, uh, my my son out of Egypt, right? You see Jesus going down with Mary and Joseph to Egypt for safety. Remember that after Jesus' baptism in the Jordan Valley, he chose the wilderness, just like Abram. Remember that like Abram, Jesus chose to rescue his family from the war of the world. Remember that like Melchizedek, he is the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Remember that at the last day, he will rule in the new Jerusalem as both high priest and king, as a priest king. And because he is more than an appointed man following the law with the blood of goats and cattle, but rather he is a son who has been made perfect forever. What I'm trying to show you here is the entire Bible is about Jesus. So you can't say, well, you know, I just read the red letters. I just do what Jesus says. I got news for you. The whole Bible is about Jesus. And if you want to fully understand Jesus, you've got to read the Old Testament. You've got to mine the Old Testament. You've got to understand the storytelling of the Old Testament. And I hope that this lesson series is helping you do that. So I hope that uh, you'll spend some time with Jesus tonight or this afternoon, tomorrow morning. I hope that you'll spend some time with Jesus. And I hope that that will bring you uh, a greater sense of his righteousness and what you can learn from that. And I hope it'll give you a great sense of peace in this tumultuous time. Sketches from Scripture is a production of Parabolos, the production company of author and filmmaker Paul Andrew Skidmore. Subscribe to this podcast and more at skidmore.substack.com.